SpongeBob, Shrek, The Daily Show, Sailor Moon, Boy Bands, Sports Enthusiasts, Sherlock Holmes, Barbie, Britney Spears, Hello Kitty, Jandek, Comic Books, Superheroes, Buffy. These are just some of the many, many topics I cover on my podcast, How to Stand, a show about both specific fandoms and just pop culture, internet culture, internet trends overall. Check out How to Stand in the same feed as my other podcast, 17 Karat K-Pop, wherever you get your podcasts. And I'm an independent creator, and so please spread the word about the show. There's an episode for every interest, and I really do appreciate the support spreading the word. You can also find out more info at my site, 17karatkpop.weebly.com. Thanks so much. Hi everybody! Welcome back to Enthusiasts, the year in review special. I'm going to go through what I talked about on episodes of Enthusiast this year, what each episode covered, so that whatever episodes pique your interest, you can visit during the show's hiatus. Besides giving you a blurb about each episode I released this year, I also thought this was a good opportunity to do what I did last year, where I explain which parts of these episodes ended up on the cutting room floor. Pieces that would have been interesting to talk about, but just didn't fit into the final episode. This is the throwaways bonus content episode. Without further ado, let's get into it. The first episode I released this year was all about Elvis, his career journey, why he got so big, his lingering impact on music, his lingering fan base, and the most diehard fans, the ones who organize the yearly Elvis festival, Elvis impersonator events, who cosplay as Elvis or Priscilla routinely, who charm the neighborhood with their impromptu porch performances, what the Elvis impersonators and other fans are still up to all these years later, and why they still feel drawn to him. I also debunked some rumors and conspiracy theories about him in the FBI and a whole bunch of other crazy speculation. I break out the kernels of truth from the many conspiracies. I released an episode all about reality TV, where I talked about the most bizarre, I can't believe this was allowed to be a show that aired, reality shows of all time. The weirdest, most bizarre shows that that probably should never have been greenlit. I also dive more into the history, more generally, of reality television, how Big Brother really spearheaded the genre in some ways, and other pivotal moments, like with the Kardashians. And the enduring appeal, the reasons why people get so into reality shows. I get into the sociology of it towards the end. Some things in the reality TV episode I did not get to, but I could have. I was going to dig in more on the whole lexicon reality TV has truly given us. And not just like the catchphrases your favorite reality show character said, but I mean like actual business-specific terminology that reality TV really helped popularize. Like OTF, on the fly, spur-of-the-moment interviews with contestants, the hybrids, which are on-the-fly interviews that take way longer than expected, the money shots, those are the ones that really let the climax present itself, precap, like recaps but before a big event, frankenbites, the edited clips combining snippets from different interviews to slap together into this one main story, The challenge producers have a super fun job. They're hired to design the games within the show. So lots of specific roles and terms became a thing thanks to reality shows. They also have had a real-world impact by towns and the people from those towns becoming either their new heroes or the opposite. 
Actually, Ari from The Bachelor, long story short, he sent Lauren home, proposed to Becca, dumped Becca, admitted he loved Lauren. Anyway, a Minnesota lawmaker pledged to ban him from the state with a certain amount of retweets in support. It was a whole thing. So prank or not, there are actual government officials who can get involved in this culture. Another angle I did not have time to get into in the reality TV episode is the interesting reversal of a trend. Because a very common media export direction is the USA and then other countries make their own versions. A reality show is proven successful often first in Europe. Then American producers put their own version of it out there. This fact is bonkers. I didn't have time to squeeze it in and make it relevant in the final episode, but I just have to share because, oh my gosh. The million dollar prize on Survivor is the amount of money the network recoups in one minute of advertising. So they give their player a big grand prize, but actually a very small fraction of the money they get paid back through advertisers scrambling to advertise during Survivor. I also considered taking the angle in that episode about talking about a surveillance state, how our current surveillance world intersects with our reality interests, our sense of kind of voyeurism as entertainment. There's some interesting studies that reflect viewership surveillance shows linked to a higher likelihood of assuming women are behaving more inappropriately than men in their setting. I also didn't have time to fit in a very interesting story about the music in the real estate show Selling Sunset, because it's full of dramatic scenes, stepping out of expensive cars, walking around properties worth millions, dressed in super expensive, impractical outfits. It's all very overtly over-the-top and showy, these personas. Their personas are so over-the-top. The average episode of the show fits about 15 songs in it. 15 an episode because of those dramatic walks and other scenes. In a 10-episode season, around 150 songs end up getting some airtime. And it's a very careful curation process. Actually, some showrunners, like the guy behind Selling Sunset, has a no-repeats rule about songs on the show. And they want songwriters who will go along with their very specific request. In the case of Selling Sunset, they want super cringe vibes. Super just unlikable, out-of-touch, rich girl vibe. They want you to be not substantive. They want frivolous fun. Actually, this isn't just to create a very specific mood for your show specifically, but also if they actually tried just using not original music, that would be very expensive and could cause legal headaches. Some songwriters actually really enjoy writing for TV because unlike writing for an artist on the radio, with TV you at least have more of a guarantee that you get paid for plays because they're bound to play your song. That's less likely to change on a whim. One of the reality shows I considered putting in my most bizarre shows list, but ended up not, because I guess it's more normal for TV than the other bizarre ones I talked about, but still very interesting with its impact, Cops. It's probably not a good idea for me to plug other podcasts, but I will say Running From Cops is a really good podcast, sorry. Make sure you catch up on my show first, but after you're done with Enthusiasts, go check out Running From Cops. They watched over 800 episodes of Cops and then did so much data crunching about what they saw. Turns out, in the real world, 25% of traffic stops end in arrest. Only 25% of traffic stops. On the show, it's 92%. 
The show cops also make certain crimes seem more common. The show shows three times more drug arrests than your average in the real world and four times the amount of violent crime. The show also points out ways the commercialization of policing has been really detrimental with drugs planted on certain subjects for the sake of the show, other bad incentives to mess with real people for a fake script. COPS has teamed up with over 150 police departments nationwide, and the podcast exposes the interesting conditions in those contracts with those departments that basically say those departments get final say over what footage ends up in the final broadcast. So it's all a narrative the COPS get to control. It's not objective at all. And the show also talks about people whose lives have been really harmed by their reputational damage of being featured on the show. But it's a really interesting podcast. And Cops is a great example of a real world way that reality shows are not ironically called reality shows. But they are twisting and changing, revising what reality is. Reality shows show us reality, but in a funhouse mirror type way. I then had an interview with Kelly Weil of The Daily Beast about her new book, Off the Edge, about the Flat Earth Movement, conspiracy theorists, what to do about misinformation, ethical questions to consider regarding content moderation, regarding how to balance reporting, exposing dangerous rhetoric without just being a platform for said rhetoric. We get into some really thorny, interesting ethical questions. It's a pretty deep interview, but also full of just some fun kooky stories about Flat Earth believers and their trials and tribulations. I released a two-part special all about Elon Musk, who he is, how he was formed, what value shaped him, and who has his ear. Part one dives into the early years of his life and the creation of all of these different companies and him rising through the ranks of Silicon Valley types. Part two is more modern, the more current timeline of all sorts of legal, personal, social, political, all kinds of incidents he has made news for in recent years. I guess you could also consider part three my most recent episode, which dives into the history of Twitter and also then takes a look at his, the people he follows on Twitter, the people who are championing his purchase of Twitter, the people who now public documents reveal were texting him their pitches for the future of Twitter, the people who have really influenced his psyche over the past few months. I get into that part of his ideological and economic transformation. Basically, if you're tired of hearing about Musk, check out Elon Musk parts one and two, and then the Twitter history episode, and then you'll feel like you know everything you need to know about him, period, and you can move on. The latest in the Elon Musk Twitter ownership saga since we last talked about it. December 6th, an investigation was launched by San Francisco building inspectors. They have been investigating rumors that office space is being turned into sleeping quarters, which is not always legal. You can't just turn an office setting into a home address, basically, and live there. That's just not allowed. So they're investigating. I wouldn't be surprised given what we talked about with the intense, nearly 24 hours on mentality of the workers at Musk's other companies. That culture is back at his new company, Twitter, 
One anonymous source told Forbes they estimate four to eight of these bedroom pods are on each floor of Twitter's San Francisco building, described as, quote, cozy, which is a nice way to say cramped. Meanwhile, Tesla in Berlin is having problems hiring and retaining workers. Things are not going well for Tesla either, and lately, Musk keeps dumping so much Tesla stock. Yet the company still has promising pitches. A few weeks back, they delivered the first fleet of their electric semi-trucks to customers, an idea that was first revealed as a prototype five years ago. This is so fast developing, but as of December 14th, 2022, the latest in the Musk case includes a big auction, because Twitter's trying really hard to generate some money. They're auctioning off a very interesting array from a giant at symbol sculpture that's also a planter and six feet tall to a giant bird statue that's three feet tall to an exercise machine with a charger built in to office supplies, furniture, all sorts of stuff. They also might be cutting costs because the entire trust and safety team was dissolved minutes before they were set to meet. And the former head of that team has faced so many threats that his family were forced to go into hiding. Hate speech is really up high on Twitter, and Musk keeps fueling these flames of conspiracy theories of all kinds. He insists this needs to be allowed for his free speech absolutist vision. But the other day he suspended the account that was tracking his private jet. Now that it's personal, he cares about stopping people from sharing live locations. This is a peak example, though, of him kind of changing the terms of service in real time. Because it doesn't sound like he thought through how that would work. Because at first it sounds reasonable, right? Safety risk to tweet someone's live location. So we're going to turn off that feature completely. But there are a million times where that's very important for context. Like, what if you're a White House pool reporter? Want to show people I'm reporting live at the scene. This is really happening. It's a further chance to kind of sow confusion. He also has been trying to be liked, basically. And Dave Chappelle, for some reason, brought him on stage during a comedy set where Musk was booed for a solid 10 minutes. Now, Musk tweeted later, it was majority cheers and then some boos. But everyone who is there who has spoken about this says that is so not what happened. Musk is no longer the richest man in the world, which is kind of a funny timing that he was booed at the Chappelle show and now is no longer that rich. Coincidence, but funny. Bloomberg just reported the $5.7 billion Musk said he donated to charity last year went to Musk's charity. Would you look at that? Former Twitter owner Jack Dorsey continues to express regret for how he dealt with things at Twitter, and he's pledged now he's going to invest a million dollars in a different app, Signal. The latest as of December 21st, 2022. Musk continued to make Twitter policy via poll in two very critical cases. First of all, he had poll participants decide if he should unsuspend the accounts of journalists he had suspended arbitrarily. He claims some of them doxed him, but they were using publicly available data. He's literally a public figure. The doxing was a pretext to get rid of their accounts. So he thought, should I unsuspend those accounts? 59% voted yes, and he complied. The second big poll was if he should just step down as head of Twitter. 
Nearly 60% said yes. Yes won out. But as of recording time, he is still supposedly looking for someone, quote, foolish enough, unquote, to take the job. And he wants to stay on board, dealing with more backroom server type functions without being the accountable, taking flack, public face of a company. And of course, he could always go back and change the rules or say the poll was rigged or something. He followed up this poll by tweeting about being careful what you wish for. He also said from now on, Twitter blue purchasers should be the only ones to have the ability to vote on policy-related Twitter polls. Which, first of all, did he just reinstate a poll tax? What the heck? Second of all, I entirely disagree with the argument that Twitter blue users should be the only ones who get to vote in these consequential polls because they're the only ones who have skin in the game. I totally disagree. Twitter has a huge impact on public discourse for free users and paying users alike. We should all be able to vote equally if we're going to do things via Twitter poll. That's the least we can ask for. He also had to quickly reverse a short-lived policy banning the ability to link to other sites on Twitter. Although he actually left some off the list, including TikTok, which is a company from China where he does business. Interesting. And this was obviously super anti-competitive. It's not legal for a business to so overtly just block out competition. Such monopoly behavior actually directly violates European Union rules. So if he had kept the policy, he could have faced a fine of up to 20% of Twitter's annual revenue. Any company paying 20% of the revenue in fines should probably just change the policy. And also keep in mind that they usually operate in the red, so what revenue do you speak of? And his wealth has now dropped over 100 billion, more than the GDP of Bulgaria, Uruguay, Croatia, Iceland, holy cow. I was also going to rope in a mini history lesson about Twitter's evolution and its origin story. That context, though, got cut for time. So now I'm going to share with you some fun facts about Twitter and how people have perceived its role in free speech or defamation. In 1988, Hustler magazine v. happened. The Supreme Court reversed a lower court's ruling and confirmed the First Amendment does indeed protect parodies. Parodies that are clearly labeled as such are protected free speech, not defamation. Larry Flint, publisher of Hustler magazine, posted a parody about Jerry Falwell, Liberty University founder plagued by scandals, look it up, and a founder of this group Moral Majority. The parody, in 1983, was a spoof of an ad campaign. The Falwell version was incest-related. The ad explicitly said at the bottom, quote, ad parody not to be taken seriously, unquote. Even in the magazine's table of contents, they included the fiction label. So the jury ruled that Hustler magazine was legally protected, although they did rule in Falwell's favor when it comes to intentional infliction of emotional distress. That that kind of view of free speech is interesting history that relates to the ethos behind Twitter about you can post jokes if they're clearly labeled as such. That actually would only factor in, though, years down the road. When Twitter first got started back in 2006, it was a free speech absolutely zero censorship focus. But they eventually learned people get angry and sue each other for defamation. Twitter was created in 2006, actually just as a small side project from Odeo, a podcast tool. 
In July 2007, Twitter got a $100,000 Series A funding round. Plus, got heavy South by Southwest promo that summer and saw its popularity surge. In 2018, Jack Dorsey stepped down as CEO. Reportedly, he had a management style that really ticked off people. Twitter stayed on the rise, though, in 2009, getting a boost from an Oprah appearance from Evan Williams, one of the co creators, as well as a Time 100 write up by Ashton Kutcher. After more complaints about new management in 2010, Williams stepped down and was replaced by Dick Costello. Twitter further showed its incredible reach, with the first tweet ever being sent from space happening that year. Then came the Arab Spring in 2011. The Arab Spring showed Twitter's enormous impact on real world events. Twitter really fully proved its potential through the Arab Spring when it was used for organizing and spreading info as these anti government protests swept Egypt, Libya, Tunisia. The app that year also showed its power to really break news faster than ever. Whitney Houston's death was reported on Twitter 55 minutes before the AP confirmed it. In 2012, Twitter had reached 200 million active users. And it was the first time a presidential victory was declared via tweet by Obama. Twitter went public in 2013, and the combined wealth of three of the co creators reached $4 billion. Twitter also brought in $1.8 billion upon going public, really bright future ahead of it. This was also the first time Twitter shifted from all free speech allowed to certain harassment and hate speech policies. This was not preventative. It was prompted by a bunch of threats, doxing, cyber abuse of all kinds towards someone who had proposed putting Ada Lovelace on English currency. The misogynist had knives out for her for suggesting that, which led to the first time there was a report post option where you could report hateful content. Stocks declined and user growth slowed in 2014. That was also when Gamergate happened, which would be a separate hours long podcast, but basically boils down to more extreme misogyny online. Actress Leslie Jones even had to personally reach out to Dorsey to plea for more safety against hateful tweets as the female Ghostbusters remake cast was really, really hit with so much backlash. Dorsey was reinstated as CEO in 2015, but people are still concerned. And in 2016, Disney drops out of a deal to buy Twitter for $15 billion. Interesting that Musk bought it for $44 billion. Disney almost did for $15. Salesforce also, rumors have it, was considering buying it then. But people always worried about the liabilities. But Twitter stocks were back up in 2017. Then people were concerned again, not just for hate speech, but for data security. There was a massive hack of verified accounts back in 2020, and Dorsey was out yet again in 2021. In one quarter of this year, 2022, Twitter brought in over a billion dollars in revenue, but spent $1.5 billion, with over $450 going to research and development. Yet people still rely on it for quick updates from the most trivial and silly to the most serious life saving intel. It truly is revolutionary, despite all its economic ups and downs and consumer complaints. It has really thrived and does stuff that other apps just don't. So it's really a very good one, but also a bad one in the hands of people with bad intentions.
I did an episode covering the Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial, putting it in context with historical examples of tabloid fervor, famous celebrity trials, and the reactions to them. Why certain fans rallied behind someone insisting guilt or innocence, what impact it could have when these diehard fans physically appear at court. I also get into the reasons why this specific trial was mocked and just really grossly memefied and belittled as well as why it was able to be a social media spectacle in the first place, why it was publicly available to watch unfold. Early July of 2022, a jury summons sent back out in April was reported on by deadline. This summons was sent to a Virginia residence for jury duty who shared a last name with someone else in the same house, so Amber Heard's legal team then brought that up and suggested the summons was actually meant for the other person with that last name, so this jury should not be accepted as valid. The judge denied the request to toss out the verdict on this condition. The first week of August, some pro-Amber Heard hashtags finally started trending after the release of tons of unsealed documents in the case after the fact, which revealed all sorts of incriminating for Depp text messages that were not allowed in as evidence. That also revealed quite a few of Heard's backers were barred from testifying. In a bizarre, unsighted wrinkle in the case, Kanye West hired Johnny Depp's lawyer in October to handle his own business interests. She left the job within a week, and rumors about her dating Depp continue to be alive. At the beginning of November, Depp appealed the verdict. Even though he won the case, he wants to appeal and keep fighting in court to fully clear his name, I guess, which is weird because it's not like he lost a ton of career opportunities. This is around the same time he was featured in Rihanna's fashion show for inexplicable reasons. In a very delayed show of support, an open letter was released in mid-November with a bunch of organizations and famous people signing it in support of Heard, condemning the online harassment campaign against her, standing with her, and bringing up the fact this is a dangerous precedent for abuse survivors, knowing that the odds are stacked against them if they try to go to court. No explanation has been given for the extreme delay in public support for Heard. It's a very interesting sociological conundrum about how people feel only permitted to express support in certain ways after other people do. It's got to be this big public wave or it doesn't happen. It's a weird self-perpetuating social stigma people push. A weird unspoken norm about what you can or cannot say until a certain amount of time has passed. People are weird. Human behavior is weird. Amber Heard, meanwhile, is countersuing an insurance company alleging breach of contract. The company claims they deserve to be relinquished from paying up to a million dollars in a liability policy because of the jury verdict, but Heard alleges the company pledged that regardless of the verdict, they would pay up a million dollars in a liability policy. There are a lot of technicalities related to California law, but that is just an ongoing issue. 
Heard's team also filed their own appeal November 23rd that brings up the fact because the Washington Post servers are located in Virginia, are not located where the claims were raised, that this whole thing is not going to work, that this whole thing can't stand. It's an interesting new argument now with an appeal saying that the trial was, quote, based on its mistaken conclusion that Depp's claims arose in Virginia because the Washington Post servers are located here, unquote. So basically claiming that this whole case was tried in the wrong place, because if you want to sue for defamation in a separate case related to Washington Post, you should have done it where Washington Post servers are. The documents also blame this judge for allegedly giving improper jury instruction that contributed to the odds being stacked against Heard. A lighter note, I did two episodes about American Girl. A really nice, wholesome conversation I had with Allison Horrocks, who is a host of what's now called Dolls of Our Lives. Previously, it was called American Girls. It's a good podcast that adds a historian's perspective on the American Girl books. I talk about the characters more generally and the brand's history and evolution in part one. The follow-up episode has our interview, a really nice wholesome talk about our love of books and learning, and this beloved brand that I just love so much, You're Never Too Old. Something completely different, when I interviewed Darren Schaefer, host of the Cooper Vortex podcast. He is one of those Cooperites, you could say, a D.B. Cooper story enthusiast. It's the only commercial airline hijacking in its history to go unsolved. In commercial airline history, the only skyjacking that was never ever solved is D.B. Cooper's case. He took money, he took ransom, jumped off the plane mid-flight, and no one knows what happened to him. Never seen again. He didn't hurt anyone. He acted like a normal passenger up until the ransom started. It was very mysterious, and decades later, questions still remain about who the heck he was. So we talk about a lot of possible suspects and the reasons for the story's enduring intrigue. I made an episode breaking down a bunch of celebrity scams when influencers have broken the law, misled their fans. Yes, I talk about Pink Sauce Girl, but also lesser-known culprits and the ways fans have left them after being scammed or just stayed a dedicated, loyal supporter. Whatever happened to Pink Sauce Girl, a.k.a. Chef Pie, P-I-I? She signed a licensing deal with David's Gourmet, so Pink Sauce should be in stores before you know it, if it's not already. What happened to famous scammer Anna Delvey? She's been put on house arrest while her deportation battle continues. She was put on house arrest with an ankle monitor and a $10,000 bond and a continued ban on social media posts. There are some interesting deception stories I didn't get to in the scammer episode. Influencers who scam people didn't deliver what was promised. Then there's the story of Manic Enterprises. This was back in 2010. It was a joint effort between ATF, DEA, ICE, the FBI. They basically pretended to be a recording studio, but it was a sting operation that was then officially executed in 2011. An undercover agent pretended to be the manager of this international recording studio chain that ended up being where drugs and guns were being bought. The sting led to 161 gun seizures, $7 million worth of confiscated drugs, and 70 arrests. 
One suspect had even offered to throw in some rocket launcher and grenade sales while talking to the undercover officer. And one suspect ended up bragging to an undercover officer about previous crimes they had gotten away with. The investigation really went sideways when the secret kind of got out and there were planes to rob the studio. So the investigation had to really had to speed up before it could be robbed. I didn't end up sharing this before, but there's a lot of interesting context that informed my views of the scammer world from Simone Brown's book, Get Rich or Lie Trying. A really interesting look at clout rage, as it is dubbed in the book, swatting attempts, fast fashion, VidCon, a wide host of ways the new influencer economy is run, and how younger generations are interpreting and perceiving wealth and the attainability of wealth thanks to this influencer economy. I made an episode about famous disappearances, when different celebrities, athletes, artists, poets, writers, band members went missing, and how search and rescue efforts have or have not persisted. One thing I was going to include in the famous disappearances episode, but there just wasn't adequate time, was the disappearance of fans, not just stars, particularly Grateful Dead fans. Quick, quick, quick overview. Grateful Dead fans have been known to follow the group, so they actually would go show to show and live the whole lifestyle of a fan. A core part of their identity was traveling and following this group, selling merch and stuff at the shows to keep making enough money to keep going. It seems suspicious how many of these fans were going missing or dying, but it's very important that that sort of eyebrow raising should be taken with a grain of salt. You have to keep in mind correlation does not equal causation. And there were a host of other reasons. If you're more likely to be a Grateful Dead fan, you're more likely to end up missing or dead. That does not actually directly have to do with being a Grateful Dead fan. But maybe what drew you to the group led to your death, but not directly. Like a desire to live on the edge rebelliously. A counterculture tendency. A living without a paycheck way of life that may lead you to, I don't know, get into a violent fight with someone over money or something. The van life is dangerous, as is the situation for people sometimes drawn to the van life. Maybe it implies a lack of a stable home life. When Grateful Dead fans die, though, it makes the news. Like with Mary Giola and Gregory Niffin from Berkeley in 1986. They had been staying at a homeless encampment and were beaten and shot to death by a fellow homeless encampment resident. Then there's Grateful Dead fan Jason Callahan from Myrtle Beach, who died in a car crash. Joe Hildebrand and John Cleary in 2019 were last seen traveling to a show. Then their abandoned car was found, and there was speculation of a homicide. The Grateful Dead drummer, Mickey Hart, actually helped spread the word about the missing fans. Missing posters were shared at Dead & Company shows. His remains were eventually found. He was not found alive. There was Adam Katz back in 89 in New Jersey. He was killed outside the arena. The family sued for an undisclosed sum. Then one fan died in 2021 in New York trying to flip off the balcony. Million more examples. It is peculiar, but again, don't get too conspiratorial. Correlation does not equal causation. It's not specifically about being a fan of this group. I talked to Professor Louis D. Valencia, who teaches digital history, about his Harry Styles-themed class that will be next semester. 
what he expects from the class, the reasons why he chose Harry as a topic, what kind of assignments they'll do, the importance of understanding media, pop culture, at a deeper level, taking it seriously. It's very enlightening to convince someone in your life of why Harry Styles deserves all the appeal, but it's also a good conversation if you're already converted into the Harry Styles fandom. Before I decided to just talk all things Harry Styles and interview Professor Louis Valencia, I had been considering doing an episode about just all celebrity-themed college courses. There are way more than you'd think pop culture courses you could take, so I did do some research on that before pivoting to the Harry Styles focus, but here are some interesting classes that have been offered in the past. Alana Del Rey course at Clive Davis Institute, that's new. A Taylor Swift course at the same school, looking at her impact on Gen Z songwriters, Disney star-esque purity era in that kind of culture, her impact on the public and vice versa. Rutgers University had a class analyzing Beyonce's discography. University of Texas Austin had one about Beyonce and Rihanna together. Rutgers had a class about Bruce Springsteen, focused on analyzing religious motifs in his work. A degree in the mortuary science category was offered about Michael Jackson. A class about Outcast has been held in Armstrong State University. A class about Tupac from the University of Washington. A class at the University of South Carolina is called Lady Gaga in the Sociology of Fame. There's a Sociology of Miley Cyrus class that was offered at Skidmore. A Kendrick Lamar class, which compares his work to Ulysses, Spike Lee's work, and others, was held at Grinnell. There was a different one in Augustana. There have been a ton of Kanye and or Jay-Z classes. A Jay-Z one at Georgetown, a Kanye one at the University of Washington, and then one about Kanye and Jay-Z at the University of Missouri. About, which is very odd in hindsight, the American dream, corporate power, and their music giving social commentary about both. A course offered in New York about David Bowie looks at his involvement and interest in Buddhism, German Expressionism, Existentialism, Beatles, Madonna, Robin Hood, that was at a UK university, Nottingham, a J-term class called Spirituality and the Politics of U2, Lord of the Rings, Judge Judy, that one is at Berkeley, University of California, Berkeley, that actually argues and focuses on pointing out all of the legal flaws in the logic of Judge Judy. The Wire, The Walking Dead, there was a Walking Dead course about more broadly how you could rebuild a civilization after some sort of apocalypse. 65,000 people enrolled, and only 2,203 ended up succeeding and seeing it through. Mad Men, Game of Thrones, Hamilton, Star Trek, superheroes, the work of Margaret Atwood, vampires. But as I was looking at all these examples, by far the most common pop culture source for a college curriculum to be based on was Harry Potter. Literary classes, more sociology-based classes, so many different facets of Harry Potter given their own classes. In Texas, Maryland, the UK, all over the world, people have used Harry Potter to teach. And of course, there's some cool classes about The Simpsons, which I dug into in the Simpsons episode of Enthusiasts, with the professors behind one of those classes. Lastly, I did a Satanic Panic three-part episode. 
breaking down the history of satanic panic claims and how they're very much being echoed and repeated by conspiracy theorists online. It's like we never learn anything. And so to see history repeat itself, to know the historic origins of all sorts of satanic conspiracies about the world we live in, that bizarre, bizarre, bizarre story I unravel in a two-part series. Then part three is an interview with Rick Emerson, who wrote Unmasked Alice, exposing the author behind what she claimed were real diaries, like Go Ask Alice and Jay's Journal. Turns out she made them all up. Those were fabricated stories in furtherance of the goals of the fear-mongering and satanic panic, and how she fueled the satanic panic with her fake memoir possession. It makes for a very, very fascinating, not reported enough story about what those books were really all about. Some examples of satanic panic that I didn't get to in the series of episodes, but this is the kind of thing I talked about in them, if that interests you. A Florida school principal, accused of being satanic, spent 21 years in prison for it, then had to move to a different country upon release at age 80. An author and journalist and his brother were arrested in Turkey upon a satanic panic claim people thought they were putting subliminal messages into a live TV broadcast. They were indicted for an alleged overthrow of their government. Dutch investigative journalists heard over 200 allegedly satanic ritual victims' testimonies pointing a finger at a specific warehouse. During the investigation, the warehouse was burned to the ground and they got an anonymous threat. And a woman under hypnosis came to believe she had killed her sister, the one who had died years before the woman herself was born. Mass hysteria at its peak. You can catch all of these episodes in the same feed as my other show, 17 Karat K-Pop. I'm working on transferring them, so hopefully someday you can just search enthusiasts and it will come up in a separate feed. But for now, you can see them all at 17 Karat K-Pop. If you type in the topic of the episode you want to hear and then start typing enthusiasts, it should come up. For example, reality TV, open parenthesis, enthusiasts, episode, and then it should populate some answers for you. So wherever you get your podcasts, you can check out these episodes. You can also check them out, 17karatkpop.weebly.com. Click the more button in the top right corner, and then in the drop down menu beneath more, click enthusiasts. Then you'll get to that show page with a full episode directory. It may be a while until Enthusiast comes back. takes so much work behind each episode, so please be patient and in the meantime catch up on what you missed. Thank you all so much for tuning in all year, and I'm very excited to give you tons more stories on Enthusiast in 2023. Thank you all so much, and I'll talk to you all again before you know it. Bye everybody, thank you so much for listening.